The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning. Bereans, it's good to have you here. We're working our way, slowly maybe, but we're working our way through 2 John. And for the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about the Incarnation. And we've been looking at this subject because of what John says in verse 7 here. He says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Yeshua the Christ in the flesh, such a one as a deceiver, and the Antichrist. Now he says that these deceivers, these Antichrists, they're not confessing the coming of Yeshua in the flesh. So John is warning the believers that he's writing to about these false teachers. He calls them Antichrist. And the theological issue here is that these teachers are denying that Christ came in the flesh. They're denying the Incarnation. They're denying the hypostatic union. They're denying the theanthropic person. So we spent some time last week talking about the hypostatic union. Now, let me add a word of caution here. We need to be careful when we talk about things like this because the hypostatic union ultimately transcends human reason. Christ is 100% man and 100% God. How's that work? I don't know. It's 200%, but he's not 200%. He's 100% of each. We're talking about an incomprehensible mystery because we're talking about Yahweh. We don't have any human analogy that we could use to enable us to accurately understand what it means for a divine person to possess not only a, a divine nature, but also a human nature, and for a union to exist between them so that we have one person with two natures. Now, I'm going to be stressing that the whole time this morning. One person, two natures, because it's very important that we understand that. Now, we looked at what Lazarus has to say about the incarnation in the fourth gospel. He says in verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he tells us that this Word, who was God, became flesh in verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So we could read it this way. God became flesh. The eternal Word, who was with God and was God, this Word who created all things, became a human being. And this verse teaches us the staggering truth that Yeshua of Nazareth was Yahweh become man. Because this subject is so important, and because Lazarus doesn't go into a lot of detail... I want us to look at another text this morning that fills in the blanks for us because I think, again, this whole idea of the hypostatic union is so important for us to understand. So let me ask you a question here. What is the single greatest passage in the New Testament on God becoming man? If you had to pick one, what would you say is the single greatest passage? Do what? Okay, this one, John 3.16, anybody else? Without question, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, is the greatest passage in Scripture 
on the incarnation and the hypostatic union. This text in Philippians is majestic. It describes the condensation, condescension of God, the second person of the Trinity, in a human incarnation. This passage is really a Christological gem. It touches on the doctrine of the incarnation, the kenosis, the hypostatic union. It's just rich theological ground. And yet what's really interesting about this passage is it was apparently given as an illustration to teach humility. See, Paul never conceived of any practice that was a biblical practice that wasn't related to the doctrinal teaching of the Word of God. And it's a truth of the Word of God that it is doctrine that's the foundation of all Christian living. All through Paul's epistles, he lays down doctrine, and then he calls them to live in a proper manner. In Romans, he spends 11 chapters on doctrine. And then in verse 12, he exhorts them to live in a proper manner. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies. After 11 chapters of doctrine, same, passage, same pattern in Ephesians. Three chapters, Paul gives them doctrine. Chapter 4, he calls them to duty. And as I said, what is really interesting about this text in Philippians, some say it was a Christian hymn which is great, great to sing theology because we remember songs. The greatest thing about this is Paul is really not looking at the incarnation, the kenosis, the hypostatic union for their own sake. He uses it as an illustration of humility. So the main point was to show the humility of Yahweh becoming a man. And here you see the self-sacrifice, the self-denial, the self-giving, and the humble love. He says in verse 5, chapter 2, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Yeshua. Now, I'm not really crazy about the ESV here. I like the Christian Standard Bible. It says this, Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Yeshua. You got that? Just have the same attitude. All right? Now, the word mind here, or attitude, is the Greek word phroneo. And it means thinking. It means attitude. The attitude that's being called for here is the one that's demonstrated in verse 3 and 4. So let's back up. And it says this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. <laughs> I guess we don't get to do much, huh? <laughs> but, in humility, count others more significant than yourself. There you go. That, if you want a life verse... For Christianity, just memorize these verses because this is the bottom line, people. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also the interest of others. Believers, here's what we have to understand. Humility is extremely important. And it's something that's not certainly praised in our society. It's something that almost looks down on our society. But I want you to understand that the Bible teaches that God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Peter put this way in 1 Peter 5, 5, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What really strikes me here is the word opposes here is antitasomai in the Greek. Thayer says it means 
to range in battle against. Basically, what this is saying, God puts on battle array and stands in opposition to the proud. How do you like that? But he gives grace to the humble. We're to learn from Christ and His example of humility. And we can only learn from Him as we study Him through the Word of God, as we get to know doctrine, as the Scripture teaches. John 13, 15, Yeshua said, I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done to you. He says this in the context of washing the disciples' feet. And it didn't mean they all need to wash each other's feet. He's giving you a humble example. We need to serve one another humbly. In Philippians 2, 6-8, through 8, <clears throat> we have the descent of Yahweh the Son into humiliation. And we can't copy His deity, His incarnation, His perfection, His miracles, or His redemptive work. But we are called to copy His humility. In verse 5 it says, have this mind among yourselves. Verse 5 is a, is a transition from exhortation to illustration. And this illustration is not going to have any impact on our lives at all if we don't understand it. So we need to first understand the theology so we can be motivated to apply it. Now the position of this pronoun, this is emphatic, and it shows that the exhortation reaches back to verses 2 and 3. All right, Humility, this is what he's calling for. Have this mind, this humble mind in you. But the pronoun in verse 6, who connects the exhortation with the illustration in verses 6 through 8. Christ is our model. So verse 5 is a transition. Connecting these verses, connecting the attitude of humility to the illustration of humility. Now, two Greek words answer the question of what was Christ like before the Incarnation. Alright? And verse 6 says this, "...who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped." The word was here is the Greek word huparko. This is not the commonest word for being in the Greek. That would be a me. But it's a verb that stresses the essence of a person's nature. It's to express the continued state of a thing. It is unalterable and unchangeable. And Paul said Yeshua unalterably and unchangeably exists in the form of God. This speaks of His pre-existence. This is going back to John 1.1. 1, 1. The word form here is the word morphe. And morphe has nothing to do with shape or size. Moulton and Milligan say that morphe is a form which truly and fully expresses the being which underlies it. It refers to the essence or essential being. Yeshua pre-existed in the essence of Yahweh. Now let's compare two Greek words for form here. Morphe is the essential character of something. Schema is the outward form it takes. So Morphe is the essential form which never alters. Schema is the outward form which may change from time to time and circumstance to circumstance. The Morphe of a human being is humanity. This never changes. And when this body dies, you're going to receive a heavenly body and you're still going to be human. You'll be a human in a heavenly body. 
Because your nature is not going to be altered or changed. Your schema will be changed. Your morphe will not. The schema continually changes. For example, we all started out as a bunch of cells. And then these cells started splitting and dividing, and we became a baby. And then a child, then a youth, and a teenager, an adult. Someday we'll be elderly. Someday. It's off in the future somewhere. <laughs> Our morphe is humanity. Our schema changes. Uh, roses, daffodils, tulips all have one morphe. That's the morphe of flowers. But their schema is different. The word form here is used of schema in verse 8. And we'll get to this in a little bit. But it says being found in a human form. That's the word schema. That's a different word than he's using right now. When Paul uses hooparco here, was, and morphe form, he is saying something very specific. He is saying that Yeshua has always existed in the unchangeable essence of the being of Yahweh. Yeshua is Yahweh and always was. This is the heart and soul of the Christian faith. Yeshua is Yahweh the Son. This is where the incarnation begins. This is the point from which He descends. God becomes man. Now, if you remember, if you were paying attention, I said last week that Yeshua didn't come into being until the incarnation. All right, here's, this is what he's talking about. He's talking about the God the Word left heaven. He became a man. Prior to that, He was not a man. All right? The Word existed from all eternity as Yahweh. We just saw that in John 1.1. But I just said, if you're paying attention, Yeshua has always existed in the unchangeable essence of the being of God. How is that? Okay, this is where... <laughs> it might get a little tricky here, so hang on and hold on to your questions, all right? Last week we talked about the hypostatic union. Let me again stress what that is. The hypostatic union is the personal union or the joining of the two natures of Yeshua, namely His divine and human natures. His divine nature always existed. Always existed. His human nature came into being at a point in time at the incarnation. But here's what you have to understand. Whatever can be said about one of his natures can be said about his person. You got that? So if we're saying something about one of the natures, it's true of his person because there's only one person, but two natures. So if I said, is Yeshua eternal? Well, yes, because he has the divine nature. Is he finite? Yes, because he's human. All right? One person Two natures. We'll talk about this more in a little bit, and I'll try to explain it a little bit better. But he goes on to say, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grass. The word grasp here is from the Greek word harpogmos, and it means to take by force, to seize. It is only used here in Scripture. The noun refers to taking an attitude of seizing something. What it's saying is our Lord didn't consider the experience, the expression of His divine essence as something that he had to make sure you saw it. Let me give you a Curtis paraphrase of verse 6. Who always being the exact essence of the eternal God, 
did not consider equality with God as something that must be demonstrated. All right? He didn't feel like you have to know, all right, that I'm God. I want to show you that. He says he didn't count equality with God. The word equality here is esos, and it means exactly the same. In size, quality, quantity, character, and number. We use it this way in English. For example, an isomer is a chemical molecule having a slightly different structure from another molecule, but being identical with it in terms of chemical elements and weight. Its schema may be different, but its morphe is the same. The term isomorph, having the same form. Isometric is equal in number. Isosceles triangle, it's one with two equal sides. So he's saying that Yeshua is exactly equal with Yahweh. Is Yahweh omniscient? So is Yeshua. Is Yahweh omnipresent? Then so is Yeshua. Now this is, this is where it can get really tricky. In the person of Christ, he is isolated in the sense he's limited to he can only be at one place at a time, but he's still God, so he's omniscient and he's omnipresent. He's localized, but he's not limited. If this is stretching your thinking, that's good, because that's what we're talking about. The hypostatic union is something difficult to grasp. Is Yahweh the creator? Then so is Yeshua. Is Yahweh the beginning and the end? Then so is Yeshua. He did not consider his equality with God a prize to be hung on to. He's equal with Yahweh in every way, but while he walked on earth, he didn't look equal to Yahweh. He looked like a man. Pride says, I want you to know who I am. And you know those people because they're always telling you who they are, how great they are. You know, they're telling you all their, you know, and you don't, you just love to be around that, right? It's funny because, you know, don't pride people realize nobody really likes pride in somebody else, right? So, you know. Humility says, my right to express who I am is really not important. And we see these in a contrast between the first and the last Adam. The first Adam senselessly sought to grasp at equality with God. Serpent said, you can be like God. Yeah, that's what I want. And through pride and disobedience, he lost fellowship with Yahweh and was kicked out of sacred space. The last Adam, Christ, enjoyed true equality with Yahweh, but refused to deserve any advantage from it. He humbled himself and became obedient, and Yahweh highly exalted him. So we have to ask, which Adam are you patterning your life after? This is where it starts. Humility begins with an attitude of willingness to lay aside our rights. You know, we talk a lot about our rights, but you don't hear many people talking about their responsibilities. You know what causes disunity? You know what causes conflict? Two people concerned about their own rights, whether it be in a marriage, friends, anything. It's two people concerned about their rights. That causes conflict. Yeshua didn't grasp or clutch or cling to his rights, but as verse 7 says, he emptied himself taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. The word but here is contrastive. Not this, but this. The word empty here is the Greek word kanao. This is where we get the doctrine of the kenosis. It means to make empty. 
Figuratively, it means to abase, to neutralize, to make of none effect, of no reputation. So the doctrine of the kenosis is the self-emptying of Yahweh the Son. Now, here's the question. What did he empty himself of? The text says he emptied himself. What did he empty himself of? His, his glory, his deity. All right, let me give you some false canonic theories. All right. William Barclay says he emptied himself of his deity to take himself humanity. Well, what's wrong with emptying himself of his deity? He ceased to be God. Can God cease to be? That'd be a trick, wouldn't it? If he emptied himself of his deity, how could he say this? Before Abraham was, I am. I uh, know you not, because you were born after Abraham. This was true of his human nature. It wasn't true of his human nature, is what I mean. Or can he, could Christ say this before Abraham was, I am in his human? No. It, it, is it true of his person? Yes. Because the person is made up of a divine nature, and he could say before everyone was, I am. He's speaking as a divine being here. All right? Remember, hypostatic union is the personal union joining together of two natures. He is one person. Men are not eternal. Only God is. All men are mortal. If he emptied himself of his deity... He would cease to exist, and guess what? So would you, according to Colossians 1.17. And He is before all things, and in Him all things are held together. He didn't exchange His deity for humanity. The doctrine of the hypostatic union teaches that Yeshua had two natures. Listen, He's 100% human. It's not like 50-50, 75-100% man. Just as bit a man as all of us, 100% God. Two natures, human and divine, and one theanthropic person, the God-man. Now some say he laid aside some or all of his divine attributes. And they would appeal to verses like, and this is, blows my mind how they get this out of this verse. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Yeshua the Christ, that though he is rich, yet for your sake, he became poor. He definitely did. But what's that have to do with his divine attributes? So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. This doesn't teach that he laid aside any attributes. They also would appeal to verses like this. And this is a much better verse to appeal to, Mark 13, 32. But concerning that day or that hour, knows no one. Talking about the second coming here, right? Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Oh, look at that. The Son doesn't know when the second coming is going to happen. So they will say, well, this proves that he laid aside some of his attributes. God is omniscient. How can Christ say, I don't know, the Son doesn't know? How could he say that? Because the ignorance is coming from his human nature. He says, the Son doesn't know. In his human nature, he learned as he went along. He learned obedience. <laughs> He's 100% God who is totally omniscient, knows everything, but He's human and He's limited in His humanity like us. Okay? Luke 2.52 says, And Yeshua increased in wisdom and statute and in favor with God and men. That's speaking of His human nature, not His divine nature. That didn't have to change at all. He is God. 
So what did the eternal word empty himself of? Sharon got it right. John 17, 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now, let me ask you something. Who's praying this prayer? Yeshua, right? Okay. This request presupposes Yeshua's pre-existence with the Father and His equality with the Father. But I said last week that Yeshua came to existence at the Incarnation. So how can Yeshua be praying for something to be restored that He never had? You know the answer? Tell me. Hypostatic union, okay? (laughs) The personal union of two natures of Christ, the human and the divine. He's one person, and here the person of Christ is praying, and He's asking for what He had in His divine nature in eternity past. As the pre-incarnate Son of God, He was united in glory with the Trinity. And so Yeshua, the one person of Yeshua, the man... Only one person. You don't divide this up. He's praying for what his divine nature once had. He's addressing the Father here. Now, him and the Father are carrying on a conversation here. He's praying to the Father. He's addressing him in his prayer. But here's what I want you to understand. You never find Yeshua speaking to himself. This is important. He's got two natures. Only one person. If there were two people, you could have a conversation, okay? You don't have a conversation with one. You shouldn't have a conversation with one person, all right? In other words, there is no evidence of a dual personality of Yeshua. The evidence is just one personality who possesses two natures, not two persons. I keep stressing this. I'm hoping you're going to get it, all right? If there were two persons, you might expect them to be speaking to one another. Like, you know... Yeshua, the man could say to Yeshua, the God, could you help me out a little bit in this situation? Because I'm having some trouble here. You know, they don't carry on that conversation. All right. You never have that. Doesn't use the plural of himself. Scripture teach the unipersonality of Yeshua. One person, two natures. Now, don't make the mistake of talking about two persons, a divine and a human. One person, two natures. So Yeshua is asking to have his glory the glory of His divine nature restored because His glory was put aside when He became a man. Now, let's talk about glory here for a minute. The Greek noun here for glory is doxa. At first, the verb meant to appear or to seem, and then in time, the noun doxa came from it, and it meant to have an opinion. In time, the noun was used only for having a good opinion about someone. And the verb came to mean to praise or to honor due to one to whom the good opinion was held. Now, if a man held a right opinion about God, this meant that he was able to form a correct opinion about God's attributes. For example, the Orthodox Jew, they knew that God was all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present, merciful, faithful, holy, just, loving, and so on, with all his other perfections. When he acknowledged this, he was said to give glory to God. See, God's glory consisted of His intrinsic worth embedded in His character. And all that could be known of God was merely an expression of that. 
When we praise God for who He is, we're giving Him glory. Our word worth is somewhat equal to the word glory. The word worth refers to intrinsic character. The worth of a man is his character. And sometimes you've heard someone say they're worthless, right? That means they don't have any character, okay? You can't count on their word, you can't count on that person. Well, the worth of God is His glory. And when we praise God, we are acknowledging His worth-ship, and we shorten that and we use the word worship. That's what the word worship is, folks. It's acknowledging God's worth. That's what worth is. We're acknowledging, Lord, You are worthy. Now here, hang on with me here, there's another entirely different meaning of the word glory, which is light or splendor. In Hebrew thought, an outward manifestation of God's presence involved a display of light. This brilliant outward manifestation of God's presence was described by the word shekhanah. And in the Septuagint, the word doxa is often used to translate shekhanah. You put these two meanings of the word glory together and you have a clear picture of God's oneness with the God of humbling Himself that went along with the kenosis. He became a man. He laid aside the brilliant manifestation of His glory except for one brief moment on the Mount of Transfiguration. Secondly, He veiled His glory in the sense He did not demonstrate His attributes. I think a lot of people miss this. We don't understand this. He did not walk the earth in the power of His deity. Christ is said to be our example. We're said to imitate Him. We don't have a divine nature. So how am I supposed to imitate that? He walked this earth in the power of the Holy Spirit, totally dependent upon the Holy Spirit, totally dependent on God the Father. Yeshua shared to the full the divine nature, and He was clothed with splendor that had always surrounded God's glory. But during the Incarnation, He laid aside the outward glory. John 10.33 says, The Jews answered Him, It is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. See, they viewed Him as just a man. Because laying aside His glory involved the surrender and the voluntary use of His divine attributes. He laid aside the prerogatives of deity. Christ veiled His pre-incarnate glory by taking on humanity. But He didn't destroy or diminish any part of it. It's like when the sun is obscured by a cloud. There's no real change in the glory of the sun. Nor are its beams extinguished, nor is the sun itself in any measure changed. Its luster is only for a time obscured. The sun is never affected by that cloud, but our vision of it is. And Christ was never diminished in glory, but He veiled that glory. And from His own will, Yeshua did not use the attributes to benefit Himself. They were not surrendered, but voluntarily restricted in keeping with the Father's plan. So Christ gave up any independent exercise of certain divine attributes in living among men with their human limitations that He might become truly man. See, dependence is a necessary characteristic of humanity. And Christ lived in dependence upon the Holy Spirit in all that He did. 
Matthew 12, 28 says, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. You know, we see God do these amazing things when He's walking the earth here, and you say, that's His divine nature. No, that's His human nature, depending on the power of the Holy Spirit, performing these things. Luke 4, 14. And Yeshua returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. In Matthew 4, the temptations of Christ were related to His deity and the kenosis. His humanity longed for what His deity could have provided. But He didn't exercise the prerogatives of deity. He was dependent upon the Father. See, if Yeshua did indeed divest Himself of the exercise of the divine nature and lived among men in real dependence on the Father and found His strength and His wisdom in pure human humanity empowered by the Holy Spirit, then we can understand that His prayers were real prayers. His decisions were real decisions. His actions were genuine human actions. And He indeed is our example in all things. He lived, He walked this earth in dependence of the Holy Spirit. He said He emptied Himself and He took on the form of a servant. Now the word taking here is a circumstantial particle of manner. So the phrase explains how he emptied himself. Or he emptied himself by, by doing this, by taking the form of a servant. When he took the form of a servant, it veiled his glory. That's how he emptied himself. The word form here is morphe, which means essential nature. Now we looked at this word in verse 6. This is not a mask. This is not a Halloween costume. He didn't pretend he was a servant. His essential nature, he became a servant. He took the essence of a doulos, a bond slave. In verse 6, we see that Christ was in the form of God. Morphe. Here he's in the form of a servant. This is the theanthropic person. This is the hypostatic union. He existed in the essence of God. Then he became into existence in human form. And he's got both of them. In verse 6, we see the inner essence of God, the nature of deity. In verse 7, we see the inner essence of humanity. Was Yeshua God or man? Yes. As we said, He's 100% God. He's 100% man. This is the hypostatic union. It's undiminished deity and true humanity in one person forever. This is God voluntarily becoming a servant for us. A.W. Pink says this, What marvelous grace we behold in that wondrous descent from heaven's throne to Bethlehem's manger. It had been an act of infinite condescension if the one who was the object of angelic worship had deigned to come down to this earth and reign over it as king, but that he should appear in weakness, that he should voluntarily choose poverty, that he should become a helpless babe, Such grace is altogether beyond our ken. Who's ken? What is ken? That's right. That's an old word not used too much anymore. It means understanding. It means perception. Okay? Altogether beyond our understanding. Such matchless love passes knowledge. Oh, that we may never lose our sense of wonderment at the infinite condescension of God's Son. Amen. It says, being born in the likeness of men. The word being here emphasizes the notion of becoming. It's a beginning. You see the contrast here from the word being in verse 6. In verse 6, 
He was in the form of God, but He came into being in the likeness of man. The word likeness here is the Greek word homoioma. And homoioma suggests similarity but difference. Though His humanity was genuine, He was different from all other humans and that He was sinless. We see the same Greek word used in Romans 8.3. For God... For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. In other words, He looked just like everybody else. The likeness of sinful flesh. Homoioma. Similar but different because He wasn't... He didn't have sinful flesh. He had real human flesh. He felt pain, sorrow, He wept, He died, but He was sinless. And then verse 8 says, being found in a human form. Now... The word form here is schema, outward appearance. People saw him only as a man. He gave up the outward appearance of God, the schema of God, so to speak, the glory, but he took on the essence, the morphe of God. He didn't give up that essence. That essence was always his. The schema here is changing. The essence is the same. His glory was veiled and he looked like a man. They thought he was a man. No matter what he did, you know, they wanted to accuse him. You're just a man. You can't use those claims. The reality of his humanity is emphasized in this verse. He possesses true humanity, listen, which is just important to his deity as far as atonement goes. He had to be a theanthropic person. He had to be a man to die for man. But he had to be God to pay man's debt. That's why this is so important. We see His humanity all through the New Testament. He had a human birth. His conception wasn't human, but His birth was. He came through the birth canal just like any other baby. He came out wet and wrinkled like any other baby. You know, Martin Luther in his hymn wrote, The little Lord Jesus, no crying He makes. Any of you ladies met a baby that didn't cry? You know, it's not sinful to cry. And I'm sure He kept Mary up a few nights, okay? That's not sinful. So that's dumb that Luther wrote that. He should have known better. He's a better theologian than that. All right? He was yeah, he was just trying to make it rhyme. <laughs> the heck with theology as long as it rhymes, right? He had human growth and development. He grew up just like any other human being. And it says in the text, he humbled himself. Now, I think we often think of the humiliation as God becoming a man, and that was, but this is the point of humiliation here is from his status as a man. 30 years of preparation for three years of ministry. 30 years he prepared himself. Becoming obedient to the point of death. Now the word becoming here is genomai in the Greek. It's an instrumental particle. It indicates the means by which the action of the main verb is accomplished. The main verb is he humbled himself. How did he do that? By becoming obedient. And people, that's the best way to humble yourself, to be obedient to God. It was to the will of God that the obedience was given. And even when the will pointed his suffering and death, he accepted it. He said, not my will, but thine be done. That's when you know when you're getting humble, when you can say that to the Father about any situation. It says, even to death on a cross. The word even calls attention to the shocking form of death. You know, we think of a cross as as torture. It is torturous, but there are worse tortures. The point here is that the shame of the cross was worse than the physical agony. And that's hard for us to grasp here, but there was no greater way in which people of the first century 
could express their utter disgust with a human being than by crucifying him. It was the chief, the most extreme form of human degradation that existed. It was in the fullest sense of the word an obscenity. In polite Roman society, the word cross was an obscenity not even to ever be spoken. You weren't to utter it in conversation. Cicero wrote this, Let the very name of the cross be far removed, not only from the body of a Roman citizen, but even from his thoughts, his eyes, his ears. See, by Jewish law, anyone crucified died under a curse of God. Cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. So the utterly vile form of punishment, that which Yeshua endured, and by enduring it, He turned that shameful instrument of torture into an object of His followers' proudest boast. Why did He do it? To be our substitute. He died for us. Romans 5.8 But God shows His love for us. This writing to Christians here. Us, believers. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Yeshua did all the work. All we need to do is trust in what He has done. Martin Luther, more on track than his song about babies crying, said, Nothing more is required of justification than to hear of Jesus the Christ and believe on Him as our Savior. Amen. Salvation is free, people, but it was not cheap. Okay? So this text in Philippians, this by far is the greatest Christological section And we have to remember it develops from this practical problem. And the solution to the problem, he doesn't say, go see a psychologist, or you really need a psychiatrist, or you need a couple drugs there to help you chill out. No, he says, what has to happen here is you need to understand theology. He turns their minds to the doctrine of Christ. The underlying thought of verse 5 through 8 is this, surely if Christ humbled himself so deeply, you Philippians can humble yourselves and love and accept one another. He became obedient to the point of death on a cross. You should become increasingly obedient in your unity and your love for one another. Thank God that the story doesn't end here in verse 8 because verse 9 says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Therefore, uh, the New American Standard translates it, For this reason. In other words, because of Christ's humility in verses 6 through 8, his exaltation now follows in verse 9 through 11. We have the crown, his ascension. It follows the cross. These two are inseparable. And the words highly exalted here are the Greek word huperupsao. And it means to elevate to a surpassing position, to exalt beyond all others, to exalt to the highest position. Paul says Christ was exalted... And the implication here, believers, is so will you be exalted if you humble yourself. And that's taught all through Scripture. That's a practical application. The principle is, who humbles, he who humbles himself will be exalted. God will exalt us. We have to humble ourselves. John says the Word became flesh. And I said last week, I believe the incarnation was permanent. Okay? If the hypostatic union was dissolved... What happened to the person of Christ? How do you... Do you just do away with it? Yeshua is the God-man. If one of those natures was removed, you destroy the person. R.C. Sproul writes in The Essential Truths of the Christian Faith, 
He says, what is said of the divine nature or the human nature may be affirmed of the person. We talked about that, right? If Christ says something, he's speaking from his person. You have to understand, is he talking from the human nature or from the divine nature? We don't usually figure that out when we hear people talk because they don't, they don't have that option, okay? But we're talking about Christ here, and we have to understand. There's only one person with two natures. Look at Hebrews 6.20. He says, Where Yeshua has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We have to understand that Christ's high priestly office is forever, and this office depends on Him being made like His brother's humanity in every respect, Hebrews 2, 14 through 18. Now, when I say that the incarnation was permanent, I'm not saying that Christ still has a physical body. Okay? Because you're going to be human forever, and when you die, you're still human. You're just not going to have a body. I believe that Christ arose from the dead in the same body they put in the grave. All right? And I believe that because Luke 24, 39 says, See my hands and my feet. He's talking to them after his resurrection. That I might, it's I myself. Touch me. See, a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see that I have. I want you to see I'm real. Touch me. This is my body. Lazarus came out of that tomb. Christ came out of the tomb. He was resurrected. Then at the ascension... He received a spiritual, His heavenly body. And now in heaven, Christ is still a theanthropic person, and I think He still has a human nature, but not a physical body. Look at 1 Corinthians 15.42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. Now, what is sown is perishable, raised imperishable. These are terms used by Philo and other Jews to describe the gods. The gods are imperishable. The Stoic used that language to talk about the pneumatic beings, the spirit beings. They're imperishable. So whatever the heavenly body is made of, it's made of stuff that's imperishable. Just like those beings who are imperishable. Literally, Paul is saying that believers will be like the gods. And I think that Abraham was told that way back in Genesis. Look to the heavens. He said, so shall your descendants be. And he's not talking about the number. He's talking about deity. Deification. You will be like the gods. So believers, now, please understand me. This is my view. Preterists differ on this. Oh, do they ever, okay? But I believe that when our body dies, when we receive our heavenly body, we're still going to be human. What else are we going to be? Our morphe is human. Our essential being is human. Our great high priest is still the God-man. Yeshua is a single, undivided personality. There are two natures inseparably united for all time. He will be God-man, both fully human and fully God, in one being, forever. Christ left the heaven's glory to become a servant and died for us. And Paul says, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ. It's amazing that one of the deepest, richest theological texts, I think, in Scripture, Paul just used as an illustration. Hey, do this. You know what Christ did? 
He humbled himself. You do it too. Be humble. We're called to be like Christ. And he humbled himself to become a man. And then as a man, he humbled himself in obedience to the cross to die for us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for the opportunity to look at your word. Lord, I pray that you'd give each and every listener to this message the spirit and the heart of a Berean, Father. They would not accept what I'm saying, would not reject what I'm saying, but would study what I'm saying to see if it's true. Lord, I thank you for the day and age in which we live when we have so many study aids at our disposal and we can dig into the Word of God and learn. Give us a desire, Lord, to want to know you, that we might imitate you, Father. Amen. All right. Questions? Comments? Really? Yeah. <laughs> so I guess uh, comment, I guess. Okay. Interjection. Yeah. Not opposition. Sorry, I guess we'll That's fine. What do you mind opposition? <laughs> uh, so I think uh, you started with uh, First Peter five. Uh, God resists the proud. So I think uh, just tying in all that into some other verses which you didn't go into. I think that's important only because. Um, and looking in Revelation and where, because God's supposed to be dealt within us, no longer in a temple. Revelation says that the devil will see himself in the temple of God, i.e. in our hearts. So the devil was cast out of heaven because he was proud. Right? So with that being said, I think that is also ties into another deeper reason as to why he resists the proud. Because uh, he resists the proud because... The devil is also proud, and uh, that ties into the, and it was just something I thought of while you were speaking on that aspect of it. Uh, well, he hates pride, and that's that was the whole issue with Satan being proud, trying to, you know, disrupt the whole thing, and, and believe me, people, you know how often we fight pride. It's just, you know, you want to be somebody you want to be recognized whatever it feel you might do you i want to be the best in that or you know there's nothing wrong with that except when you want everybody else to know that you're the best in it okay <laughs> that's where the problem comes in all right it's a horrible thing and i you know and i hate to even use the word you know like we're proud of our kids i know what you mean but pride is never used in a positive way you know so it's hard to you know play that out i guess because we are pleased with our children, we're encouraged by their, hopefully, you know, by their attitudes or whatever, but to say we're proud, you know, is, oh, I'm a much better parent, I've got great kids, you know. All right, anybody else? Stanley. Explain the pre-incarnate Christ. Explain. God. (laughs) He's God, okay, I mean, all right, and again, I'm playing with words here, and I'm trying to make a distinction, and you don't usually hear this distinction, okay, but I just see it. There, there, there was no Christ, Messiah, until the Incarnation. You had the divine Word. Now, in the mind of God, He was there because, He, of course, He was coming into being, you know, and the Bible says He was slain before the foundation of the world. So, okay, so it's all laid out in God's mind. But at a point in time, the the divine word, the second member of the Trinity, took on human flesh. 
so he could die for mankind. That's the most incredible story you'll ever, ever hear. I mean, I, I just don't know what else to say other than, you know, here's God taking on flesh. And so when they saw Christ, they saw God. But they also saw a man. Were there any late messages coming from the chat room? If you care to get into it, you kind of answered otherwise ignore. When Christ ascended and his glory restored, was his flesh discarded or destroyed? Or retained. Retained? It's retallied? That's not what it said. Oh, I see. Okay, I got it. Um, okay, here's the thing. The scripture really doesn't say, and this happened. Okay? He is glorified. I believe he's in a glorified body. When did that happen? I just, I'm assuming it's during the ascension. Okay, because when he gets to heaven, he's got glorified flesh. He's not there in a physical human body because he's in a divine realm. And he has a divine body. He's got a heavenly body made out of heavenly stuff so he can live in that realm. Human body's not made to live there. When did that happen? Most people see, understand it at the ascension. We don't have a scripture to say, here's where it happened. So this is speculation. Okay? That's all it is. I believe he's in a glorified body now. I think the scriptures teach that. I showed you 1 Corinthians 15. He's imperishable. Taking on this new body. That's what will happen to us. This body can't go into heaven because it's not suited for the divine realm. But there are bodies suited for that realm. And we see throughout scripture that those bodies showed up like an angel. Boom, shows up and appears to people. Look like a human being. Talk to the human being. you know. But it was not... An earthly, fleshly body. It's a supernatural. It can transform through the realms. There's so much here that is beyond explanation. Cheryl? Sure. So where'd the other body go? <laughs> just trying to be simple. It was... Tra- I, would, I would say... It just yes. Like I would say it was transformed. Okay. It was changed. All right? That's, that's the essence of the question. Yeah. That, I, I believe it. On its way, boom, it was changed. Took this body and transformed it into... And I think that's what happens with us. Now, with us, when we die, this body drops into the dirt, and when the spirit goes, it's clothed with a new body. And again, this is how I understand it. I'm not saying I'm right, okay? I need some scriptures to back some of this stuff up, but this is how I understand it. You know, that like I said, there's not scripture to tell us this happened at that point in time, this happened at that point in time. Uh, any other questions? I want to try to really get this as clear as I can. Hope I didn't muddy the waters more today than when I cleared them up. But again, this hypostatic union is not something you just. Oh yeah, I get that because because we just we it's beyond our understanding to say he's God, fully God, yet man, fully man, and he's talking. And which which nature is he talking about? That's important to understand. And I think I even moved from last week. You know, last week we used the Hebrews. You know. Lord, Yeshua the Christ, the same today, forever. He could be talking about His human nature there. He's talk, he, Christ is talking. But the person of Christ has two natures. So He could be speaking, that's my divine nature. Same yesterday, today, and forever. Always be the same. But then He took on a human nature. Okay? Morphe and schema. Those are important words that Paul uses in that text to help us understand. Okay? Morphe, the essential nature. Schema changes. And I believe our schema will change 
when we move into this divine realm. Mm. Look at that. It's only 1230. Early. <laughs> Anybody else? Last chance. Going once, going twice. Let me check. Whoa, I got some questions here. Hang on. Okay, one question. Just disappear. I hate when that happens. Second Peter, Second Peter referring to us participating in the divine nature. Is that meaning participating in the Holy Spirit? I'm not really sure about that text, John. I think the idea is we are really, we have part of the nature of God. We are made in His image. We, we share His nature when we become a Christian because we've got God dwelling in us. We are the new temple of God. So I think that's what you know, Peter is talking about there. Why do you say Trinity instead of Godhead when the word Trinity is not used in Scripture, but Godhead is? Does Trinity and Godhead mean two different things? Not to me, it doesn't. And the word Trinity, I know, I've heard that argument. It's not in the Bible. The word is not in the Bible. There's a lot of words that aren't in the Bible, okay? It, it, the concept is there in the Bible. God is three persons. You know, I mean, I don't know where you're coming from with this. If you're anti-Trinitarian, I'm so sick of hearing anti-Trinitarian garbage, okay? If you destroy the Trinity, you've just done away with the deity of Christ. You've done away with Christianity. I got no point. I got no time for that. I have no tolerance for that because I've dealt with it so many times. Okay, and I have people. You know, I thought you were a Berean. I am. I studied that a long time ago. Okay, planted a flag, willing to die on this hill. All right, because if you destroy the deity, you are done. So sorry to be so aggressive in that, but I, I just don't have any time. You know, for Unitarians and their Jesus. Well, wasn't his question just why do you use that word? Uh, Underlying. There's an idea behind that. Yeah, there's an idea behind that. God had turned to All right, another question. Will his physical body, facial appearance, same in heaven? I don't know. I don't know. You know. I never, you know, I just, again, I'd be speculating. I I couldn't really tell you. What happened to his human body? Was it discarded and destroyed? I, again, yeah, I just I dealt with that question already. It was transformed, I think. You know, it was transformed. I know, like I said, there's differences of opinion on this, and that's where you get to be a Berean. Figure it out for yourself.